1: From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the events, issues, and people that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, I'm the director of CT Media, and I'm joined by Russell Moore, CT's editor-in-chief. Today, we're going to talk about this fusion breakthrough that happened in the last few weeks, and why Elon Musk might want to spend less time on Twitter and more time on moon mining. Sam Bankman freed, and why the road to hell might be paved with effective altruism. And then we'll end with a conversation about gathering around the table for Christmas, New Year's, and what happens when we get there. So stay with us. All right, let me set this up a little bit. We'll go to sort of a quick physics class. So fusion is this high-speed collision between two atoms, causes them to merge, and it creates this enormous amount of energy. We've understood this for a long time. The thing scientists have been trying to figure out is how to do this in a way that creates more energy than is required to make it happen. Because if they can, this could be a source for all kinds of solutions to to energy crises, to climate change. I mean, the byproduct of these things is water. So this week, the U.S. Department of Energy announced that scientists at Lawrence Livermore National Labs, which is right outside San Francisco – They've managed to do this. They've created more energy than they used up in one of these reactions. And it's a massive step towards this kind of energy revolution. There's a million caveats. It could be decades till they sort of make it efficient. But one of the things I think is most interesting about this is that the biggest obstacle that they're going to run into is the fuel that's required. To make this thing happen so again we're in physics class just for one more moment takes two hydrogen isotopes to make it happen one is called deuterium and one is called tritium so deuterium is everywhere it's in your glass of water that you're drinking right now tritium is extremely rare if, if you're in like a power plant with a nuclear reactor you can get some there you might catch some when cosmic rays break through the atmosphere otherwise it's pretty rare However, what there's plenty of is a helium isotope that's called H3. And that can easily either create tritium or you can take two H3 molecules and crash them together. It's abundant, but not on Earth. It's abundant on the surface of the moon. There's just a ton of it. So, in other words, moon mining might, at the end of the day, be the key to saving the planet in all the ways that people are talking about. So, now we come to the question, Russell, let me ask you, if by going to the moon, we could solve the climate crisis, provide cheap energy for the entire world, make a massive dent in global poverty, then what on earth is the founder of SpaceX doing, spending every waking moment uh, trolling people
0: (laughs) on Twitter? Well, uh, yeah, that's that's a good question. I think... I think one of the things that the scientists involved in this fusion advance keep saying is this is huge and not immediate. And so if you have your expectations up that this is going to immediately be the energy source we're going to have, then you're going to be disappointed. This, I heard one of them say, this is the Kitty Hawk. It's not the transatlantic jet yet. You've got to have <laughs> a Kitty Hawk in order to get there, but right. that's what it is. The questions I'm most worried about are not why doesn't someone like an Elon Musk come up with the technology to do moon mining? Well, if that's where we need to go, (laughs) it's what's going to happen when you have international conflicts about, I mean, who owns the moon? There's an American flag on the moon because we were the first there. But when you think about all of the tensions we have with really clearly defined boundaries on Earth and you take that to the next level, Mm -hmm. that's going to be tricky. It's really going to be a challenge for the next generation.
1: Yeah, and I mean, there's even been some discussion, I mean, going back, you know, for a few years now, that, you know, potentially part of the current space race that's really going on between America and China is around these very things. The stuff we could be mining in space, the moon, asteroids, all the rest of it. And it doesn't seem unrealistic as More and more money and investment is happening along these lines.
0: One of the issues that makes this so ambiguous is the fact that if you even talk about it right now, it sounds so science fiction y and so unrealistic. And somebody would say, well, why would we worry about space colonization or mining of properties in other places when we have real issues here? The problem is then once these things become real, they're already set in terms of mm-hmm. what the boundaries of them are. That's what becomes really difficult. Mm-hmm.
1: When you think about a story like this, this kind of incredible innovation, do you look at this and say, wow, this is a beautiful thing that humanity can do these things, that creation is made in the way that it is? And how much do you think of it in the way that's, you know, literally this sort of Promethean, we are playing with fire and. Who knows what the consequences of these things are? Because almost every one of these scientific innovations has come with terrifying consequences over time.
0: I I actually have more of the first reaction, and here's why. Because I think that we're still in a Promethean moment in all kinds of ways of human life, but scientific enterprises tends to be the least given to that right now even though previously the most uh, given to it. There was a mindset that I think once uh, came along with modern science that said, okay, we now understand and know the universe. Let's harness it and and move forward. Now, the deeper one gets into physics and astrophysics and and almost any other science, the more one realizes how mysterious the universe actually is. And that brings an inherent sense of limits. So I, I actually... I actually feel better about that than I would have at almost any other point in the modern era. Uh, And that's one of the reasons why, honestly, when I go onto a secular campus now, 20 years ago, you would probably find the Christians in the English department now I'm much more likely to find Christians on faculties who are astrophysicists and biologists and otherwise. And part of that, I think, is this, this sense that we really know we're not in charge of this universe and we really know there is so much we don't know. I see this as being a good but cautious development, and especially Mm -hmm. because one of the ways when we look at climate But there are some things we can do in terms of regulation. But you're not going to be able to regulate your way out of this when you're dealing with China and India and so forth. And one of the points of resistance that so many people have had to say nuclear energy is what do you do with the waste and what do you do with potential meltdowns and dangers, even though those are rare? Well, this fusion energy – promises an elimination of both of those problems. And so if that's the case, it actually is a huge advance for the safety of the planet and for impoverished people around the world.
1: I agree. And I think the other part of it that that I've found myself thinking about is just a bit of just sort of the wonder of creation of it all. Yeah. The fact that inside of two atoms, you have this enormous amount of power energy that's—ultimately, that's, it's incomprehensible for us. Like, even—you can see the numbers on the page, but they don't mean a whole lot. And I thought of this great story that Dallas Willard told years ago that he had a conversation with a fellow professor at USC, religious skeptic, particularly skeptical about miracles. And one of the things he said to Willard was, you know, this whole miracle of water into wine at Cana, if Jesus had actually done that— the power of that chemical reaction, at a minimum, it would have melted the pots. It probably would have blown up all of Cana. And Willard sat there for a moment and he said, you know, I think if he can handle the reaction, he can handle the <laughs> pots.
0: <laughs> yes, isn't that the truth?
1: And so I, I, do, I, I do think it's a moment for awe. It's a moment for wonder and, and for sobriety because I, realistically, my sense is that this is going to be a generations thing before it comes through, but it could be a real gift to the world if we're, if we're good stewards of it.
0: We'll be right back right after this quick break. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This week, a guy named Sam Bakeman-Fried was in the news. He is the founder of a company called FTX, which was a cryptocurrency exchange. Now, I'm not going to try to get into explaining what Bitcoin is or cryptocurrency is, because to be honest, I don't fully
0: understand it. And yet you understand it infinitely better than I do. So uh, (laughs) it doesn't matter a little.
1: Well, exactly. So essentially what, what matters about it is that it's this theoretically high risk, high reward digital platform for financial exchange. It's a weird thing. I'm sure people can Google it if they want to know more. But what people probably are familiar with is that FTX was running commercials during the Super Bowl. There was a really famous one that got shared quite a bit with Larry David. People were telling Larry David, get into Bitcoin. And he was going, eh, maybe not, you know. <laughs> well, it turned out he was right. <laughs> yeah. Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder of FTX, this multi-billion dollar company, darling of Silicon Valley, he was arrested this week for a number of charges by the Southern District of New York. Because even though this company on paper looked amazing, this was a guy who was testifying to Congress about these ideas like effective altruism, which we'll get to in a moment. Turns out the thing was essentially a giant Ponzi scheme. Mm -hmm. And the money was being shuffled around, and at the end of the day, it was all smoke and mirrors. First, I really want to talk about the fact that here we are again, you've got another example of someone like Elizabeth Holmes or Christian leaders even that slide into these moral compromises, where the idea that this guy has is, I'm going to go out and save the world. Mm -hmm. He would say, my goal is to get filthy rich and give away most of it. Mm -hmm. So he's going out to save the world, and he becomes a villain in the process. Just to throw it to you, why are we here again? Why is this such a well-trodden path for us these days?
0: Well, I mean, uh, first of all, I don't know much about cryptocurrency. I could not explain NFTs if you put a gun to my head (laughs) and forced me to do so. But what I do know is uh, media. I think one of the reasons why we end up in a situation like this actually is what we were just talking about a few minutes ago, that most people don't really understand it. And so there's a sense in which it seems like it's new terrain for someone, they can blaze their own path. And it also is intimidating for everyone else. Then you end up with a situation like we have with social media companies. Uh, Congress will say, we, we need to regulate these somehow. But how? We don't understand it enough to be able to do it. And I think some of that is behind this. And then some of it is My friend David French wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago. It was actually about Elon Musk, but it applies here, of guru syndrome, Mm -hmm. that often what happens is people assume because I'm competent in this one area, then that means I'm competent in everything. And it's not just that the individual figure thinks that, it's that everyone around him or her starts to think that too. And that leads to a place where you don't even know what moral ground you're on anymore. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. David Bonson, financial analyst who writes about a lot of these things, had kind of a similar comment. He referenced shiny object syndrome, and he calls it shiny investment syndrome. And the idea Mm -hmm. is that sort of whatever's new, whatever's exciting, people want to gather around it. They want to throw their name on it. They want to be attached to it. And I think in this case, the most public faces of this thing, the celebrities, the politicians, the sort of Silicon Valley titans that were connected to it publicly – They have the money to burn. You know, if the thing goes belly up, whatever they put into it, they can burn it. To me, what is pretty sinister at the end of the day here, you know, you're running commercials at the Super Bowl because you're trying to make money on volume. You want lots of people putting lots of money into the thing. And that's predatory because if people don't understand it, they don't realize that they're essentially gambling on a horse. And it's just as risky as a horse race for this thing to fall apart that They don't understand, the market doesn't understand, the politicians don't understand, and you have story after story of where the stuff just seems to sort of evaporate overnight.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the things if we look at it in a Christian church context. I mean, think of how many prosperity gospel Ponzi schemes or prosperity gospel adjacent Ponzi schemes we've seen happen, and it happens the same way. You have people who can afford to lose a private jet or two, but who are appealing to people who are in their most vulnerable place. They're financially insecure. Maybe there's a health crisis they're seeking healing from, and those are the people who end up... absolutely devastated and can't come back from it. There's something particularly wicked about that, about the shiny new object language. That's I think that's right. And I think it's right because we can look backward and say, well, what if I had invested in Facebook back when when it was nothing or what if I had invested in all of these new technologies? And so you're able to say, well, this is the next one. And so, get in on the ground floor. And that appeals to human nature in ways that can be really, really predatory. I'm kind of
1: fascinated by a character like Sam Bankman-Fried or Elizabeth Holmes as well. And the descent of characters like this. There's a documentary about Theranos and one scene in that movie... This behavioral economist tells this story. He references this this test that was given. And essentially what they did is they took people and they had them play this game. And as you won, you made a little bit of money. And he had four control groups. So the first group, it's set up so they can't lie. So they play and that sets your baseline of essentially like half the time you win, half the time you lose. Because it's played with dice. Second group The conditions are such that they can lie if they want to lie. And of course, that group earns a little bit more money than the group where they're not conditioned to lie. Third group can also lie and they're attached to a lie detector test. They also lie. Even though the lie detector is there, at the end of the day, what do they care? They're going to make the money. So they make the money. The fourth group, though, is the one that's the most fascinating. They can lie. They're connected to a lie detector. But the money they win is going to go to their favorite charity. That group lies as well, lies a lot, and the lie detector does not see it. Oh, And so to me, what's fascinating about that is that it's almost as though if you're – if you've put yourself in a place where you've created this justification that what you're doing is so important, which for sure I think someone like Holmes could be telling a lie like that to herself – Bankman-Fried is a little bit more of a mystery to me. This may have all been a scam to begin with. But if he really believes in this effective altruism thing and that this is about saving humanity in the long run, then it seems to me that those moral calculations, and then shift it to controversies in the church, those kinds of moral calculations about the ultimate good being worth the lie. I mean, you end up with the George Costanza syndrome. It's not a lie if you you really believe it, right? If you
0: believe it. (laughs) It's not a lie if the outcome is worth it. And in virtually every church scandal or church sexual abuse case that I've ever seen, and a lot of the political scandals as well, there's that calculation going on in someone's mind, which is to say, okay, we're having to do this right now, but if we don't, think about what's going to happen if this ministry collapses. I mean, I think of Ravi Zacharias, the apologist, how many people were saying to me at the beginning of that, well, Think of all the people who, if Ravi were to be discredited, wouldn't hear the gospel and atheists who wouldn't be persuaded out of that. I mean, that because nobody wants to be the villain in the storyline of their lives. You always want to be the protagonist, and you've got to find a way to get yourself there. And that's, that's often what happens.
1: Well, let me pull the lens back a little bit here. Um Part of where Sandbankman-Fried comes from on this is, again, this idea of effective altruism. And effective altruism is kind of connected to something called long-termism. And essentially what long-termism is about is this idea that the human species must carry on at any cost. It's kind of radical utilitarianism. The species is far more important than the individual, than the group. When you hear things about, like, transhumanism, where our brains are going to be wired into computer networks or certain kinds of genetic engineering or bionic stuff, that's often connected to this. So is this idea that we've got to find a way to get the human race colonizing space because at some point the resources on Earth are going to be dried up. That sits behind this philosophy of Sam Bankman-Fried and the way that that was where his money was going to go. And it it yeah. gets pretty grim pretty fast. The, the CEO of FTX's future fund, his name is Nick Beckstead, who wrote this. He said, saving lives in poor countries may have significantly smaller ripple effects than saving and improving lives in rich countries. Why? Richer countries have substantially more innovation. Their workers are more economically productive. By ordinary standards, at least by ordinary enlightened humanitarian standards, saving and improving lives in rich countries is about equally as important as saving and improving lives in poor countries, provided lives are improved by roughly comparable amounts. Now, here's the kicker. But now— It seems more plausible to me that saving a life in a rich country is substantially more important than saving a life in a poor country, all other things being equal. And if you go on with his statements, I mean, it's ideological language. It's straight out of a Philip K. Dick apocalyptic novel. You know, these vast and glorious ends. At one point, he says that preemptive violence is not something that we should rule out in order to preserve the species. It just strikes me as a very short trip from some lives are more worth saving than others to these lives are a drain on the planet's resources. Let's get rid of them.
0: Once someone doesn't have an understanding of any kind of a reckoning, any sort of judgment seat that will hold one accountable, not just for the ends, but also for the means and the ways that you choose to get there, then it's easy to end up with your own judgment seat where you're simply saying, let me look at all of the potential outcomes and let me choose the best. And I know how to engineer that and get that where we're going. It becomes a really statistical reductionist view of what human beings are, which is why those two things tend to go together that you were talking about. This transhumanist idea that if we just had the technology, I could upload my consciousness to the cloud and could live forever. Two, let's make these decisions about uh, what's best for the species in ways that can sacrifice individual human lives. I mean, it, it really is a just a more sophisticated way of doing what ancient pagan civilizations were doing. Sacrifice the children sacrifice this group of people to appease the god or the gods so that you can have the long term fertility uh, of the group. I mean, it, it really is the same thing. It's just dressed up in techno utopian or dystopian language. In every evil enterprise, no matter what it is, there's somebody using some form of the old cliche you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet. I mean, in every case. <laughs> That That is always the rationale that, that someone uses.
1: Right. And it's a power thing too, right? Like all of this stuff is about power. And I mean, I just constantly think this these days. Name a story – in scripture, in literature, in mythology, in any mm-hmm. religious tradition, where someone is grasping for power, grasping for some means of sort of living forever, you know, their own attempts to create their immortality. Name one where that works out well <laughs>
0: for people. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. It's like the the note I'd made to myself here. You know, what Tolkien says, you know, men were weak and they loved power. Yeah. And that was how Sauron took over. All right. Well, we will be right back.
2: What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood.
1: A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post October seventh world.
0: Six thirty a.m. We're, we're in, in in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're and they're going on. And on.
2: Everybody, everybody.
1: Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict.
0: When there's a weak Israel,
1: every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to
0: do with this land come come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home but they, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there.
1: This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come, all in one place. Well, Russell, it is Christmas time. Christmas is coming. New Year's is coming. A time when we often gather around the table with family and with friends. You are currently home with family right now, so I'm sure there's good Mississippi cooking coming your way.
0: Oh, yes. Oh, yes.
1: To, to, to join us for a conversation about why we gather around the table, how we can think about even making most of those gatherings this year. I've gotten to invite a, a good friend. I've really enjoyed watching his career over the last few years. His name's Yia Vang. Uh, Yia, welcome. Thanks. Tell us a little bit about your background, because it's such a part of what you do as a chef.
2: Yeah. So my nationality is Hmong. And so, you know, a lot of people haven't heard about our people group. And a lot of times we just get kind of put into that whole um, mix of like Southeast Asian or like, because like for me, I was born in a refugee camp in Thailand. So a lot of people go, oh, well, you're Thai. And I'm like, well, no, I'm not. That's where our people ended up after the Vietnam War, but it was more of the northern conflict in northern Laos. And so the Hmong people where the U.S. had their troops on the ground. They couldn't technically have boots on the ground. So what they did was the CIA and the special forces came into the hills of Laos and trained our people as paramilitary troops. And my dad, at the age of 12, joined up. And so all the boys and the men from the villages, they joined up and they were mercenaries that fought for the American interests. And there was a handshake deal that was made that said, hey— if you fight for us, no matter what happens, you guys can come to our country. You have free citizenship. And so a lot of Hmong people did. And eventually what happened was the U.S. pulled out of the war in 75. The Hmong people were left behind. And then the Northern Communist Party came through. And there was a genocide of our people. And about fifty to 60,000 of our people died. So we had to escape from Northern Laos into Thailand, where the refugee camps were. And that, you know, that's the story of our people. And here in the Twin Cities, it has the largest concentration of Hmong people in the world. There's 75,000 in the metro area here. Hmm. So I always tell people that what I love about our people is our tenacity, you know, the, the, Hmm. the ability to move forward no matter how hard it is. And yeah, that was one of those things where, you know, we just grew up and we thought that was normal life. Like everybody went through stuff like that. And, but what Our people always carried was our food. It was passed down from generation to generation. And the the great thing about our food is that every year, every five, six years, it evolves because I firmly believe that the Hmong people, our cultural DNA is intricately woven into the foods that we eat. And it tells us where we've been, where we are, and where we're going to go.
0: Yeah. What would you say would be a major difference from being among your people group in, say, the Twin Cities? as opposed to the food that would be somewhere else.
2: Yeah, so our people, are agricultural people, the Hmong people, the reason why we lived in the hills of Laos was because that in the lowlands, the majority culture didn't want us around because we were considered the dirty, poor folks. Mm. Mom and dad told us, no matter where we went, our people have found a way to use the land, to cultivate it, and that's what I love. I call it, it's it's like our grit. And so wherever we've gone in, in this country, in the U.S., we're able to use that land. Now, there's a lot of different growing seasons, right? So here in Minneapolis, like our growing season is like four months, five months at the most. You know, <laughs> if you're out in Northern California, like it's a lot longer. Like I tell people, if you are up in like the Pacific Northwest or if you're in that Northern California and you, you've you eaten a strawberry up there, it's probably from a monk farmer. Mm. You know, if you, you know right now, a lot of monk people, they want land. So, there's a lot of them, and they're going like Little Rock, Arkansas, where it's cheaper land. They can just grow stuff. Raton, like there's a lot of Hmong people down there because of the weather. You know, it's so more tropical. So, wherever we go, you can look at the way that we eat is because what we can grow and what we get, uh, you know, cultivating from the land.
0: So, you have like Scandinavian fusion dishes with pickled herring uh, incorporated in or something like
2: that. Yeah, Dr. Moore, it's really interesting because. I started using more root vegetables in the food that we start doing. And we get the hardliners, right? We get the Hmong hardliners. <laughs> well, that's not Hmong food. And I'm like, it is. Because it's the progress of our people.
0: Yeah.
2: So, you know, we're using like rutabagas and, you know, hakiri turnips and using different kinds of, you know, sweet potatoes and yams. And, and I honestly say this is our people. If we rewind it a hundred years, that's what our parents and grandparents and their parents did yeah. was they use what was around them. Yeah.
1: Yeah, the word fusion, you know, was such a sort of hip word for a little while in restaurant. (laughs) Yeah, no, I do too. Yeah. I do too. Because because what's kind of silly about it is that because of the fact that people migrate, you know, it's just the part of human life. All cuisines are fusion. Uh, Southern barbecue, that's the blend of European and African cooking styles, Cajun food, Caribbean, French cuisine, you know, all the rest. It's and so, anywhere you go, it's it's marked by people in place and the way they come together, which is a metaphor in many ways for the table itself. Yeah, uh, you were telling me the other day about the way marriages happen in Hmong communities, that it it's really uh, sort of consecrated with this common meal, with everybody eating off of the same plates. And it's a beautiful image, and I think for the church in particular, like, it's no coincidence that one of our sacraments is a meal, dining at the same table, the same meal— for a couple of thousand years. Let's let's talk about the holidays then. When, when we think about celebrating together and gathering together, we often think of these in terms of what can go wrong. You know, the awkward conversations with family, the things you're not supposed to talk about, and all the rest of it. it at least from my experience, like, that's often sort of dwelling on the worst, where the, there's so much good that happens in the way stories are shared and I don't know, I'd, I'd love to hear either one of you just reflect on your own experiences at the table, yeah, as well, like as as one who's essentially setting that table all the time through your work,
2: yeah, I think one of the things I think about is when we were kids, we would fight over little things, like it'd be like. There's four of us, and then there was five pieces of food, like chicken or something. And I would always say, who gets the last piece? And I'm always the first one in our family who was like, well, that's not fair. And I think one day my dad just had it. He's like, stop, don't say that. He never liked the word, that's not fair. And he said, when you say this is mine, you have less. But when you say this is ours, you have more. And I didn't get that as a kid until I got older. And I realized that he was saying that from a position of, do you understand what it's like just to be able to eat together at the table because he came from this position where family died, people, you know, escaping during the war and just to be able to be around the table and eat together. It's not about who gets what portion. It's about being there at the table. If you come to my mom and dad's house and the way that they do food, they lay it all on the table. And in a Hmong household, you'll never hear us say, can I make you a plate? Because we don't make plates. We give you a plate and then we invite you to the table. Because when you make a plate, it's very Eurocentric, right? This idea of everything's well put together and then you're given to you and it's like you're limited to that. But in our culture, it's not about that. It's about coming to the table and partaking of what's on the table. There's an old monk proverb that says, true brothers will even share a grain of rice. And it's that idea that We don't have all of this because it's mine, mine, mine. It's ours. This belongs to everyone. And when I think about that from a Christian worldview, I always think about it as abundance of grace. The moment we start realizing that grace is mine and I get to keep it and hold it really tight, you lose the point of grace. And it's actually about ours. This grace is for everyone.
0: You know, one of the things that I've noticed, too, is the sense of continuity. I've been thinking about that a lot because I'm kind of noticing people at our family table who aren't there. And I had a a grandmother who was just known for her cooking. But one of the things she would always do when she gave a recipe is she would leave one thing out so, hers would always be just a little bit better than even anybody else who took the recipe. And now that she's gone, we know we're missing that and it's not coming back. Maybe there's a little bit of nutmeg in there or something. We don't know. But seeing that continuity of generations around the table and the growth and the loss that comes with that.
1: Yeah, Tell us a little bit about Union Monk Kitchen and Mm -hmm. what's happening there, what's happening on those plates, and how that reflects some of your story as well.
2: Yeah. So the way that we do our food is we basically say, hey, this isn't individualized for people. Like it's, you know, the logistics of ordering, it looks like that, but it's really not. So what I say is we have our meal you can get, it's called the Zhongxia meal. In Hmong, it literally translates to happy meal because we technically can't use the word happy meal because of licensing purposes and blah, blah, blah. Another restaurant has that one. So we just call it the Zhongxia meal. And then when you get that, so in Hmong food, there's always four elements that's on the table. And when you come in, if you order Zhongxia meal, you get an option of some kind of protein. So we have this crispy chicken, we have these Hmong sausage, we have steak, we have whatever. Tofu for, yeah, it's a protein, quote, unquote. Um, and then <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble. Um, and then we have our sticky rice. It's a black, purple, sticky rice. And then we have some kind of vegetables that you can pick. And then you get a hot sauce with it. And so it's kind of that concept of meat and threes, right? Me and threes. And, and then we just kind of put it on a big kind of tray for you. And the whole idea is that you have a few people come and you order all these different ones. And then you eat together and you get to eat with each other and from each other. People always ask, well, what, what should I get? And I'm like, well, there's four of you. So you get all of them. You know, you get to, you know, kind of the best of all the worlds here. Well, so you have a new show. Tell us a little bit about the show and, and where we can see it. Yeah. So the show is called Feral. So we travel around the country finding animals that are either invasive or they're destructive to the ecosystem, or there's an animal that most people won't put on their dinner table. And we go out with the guide and we hunt them down. So we, you know, we stalk them, we catch them, we kill them. And then me and the guide, we actually cook it together outside. You can find it on the outdoor channel if, or for a couple of reasons why I really love working with the outdoor channel is, you know, the outdoor channel has a certain demographic, right? Let's just be honest. And, but being able to come in and traveling the country talking to people about who the Hmong people are. And so all these dishes we do are really common, you know, Hmong dishes, but we just change the protein a little bit. So, for example, we did um, Burmese pythons in the Everglades, you know, never been python hunting before. And (laughs) we just rolled out there in less than an hour. The guy's name is Dusty Crumb. And we... (laughs) We were in the we were in the Everglades, and I'm like, I'm doing this. And I remember he, we got to the first one. He starts pulling it out and goes, "Go get him, son! Go, go!" And I'm like, uh, "Okay." And uh, you know, and then we've done like wild boar. You know, lionfish is really fun. Iguanas. Um,
0: iguanas. I found infl-
2: yeah, yeah. Wow. So one of the most special moment on that episode for me with iguanas is that. I was showing my parents like these animals that we were hunting and I showed them iguana and my dad is, oh, you know what? We used to shoot those as a little boy and this is how we cook them. And so the same recipe we uh-huh. use on that show is the one my father taught me and said, this is how you should do it. And it was a special moment where I'm here in Southern Florida making iguana and connecting with my father huh. 50, 60 years ago. He was doing this in the mountains of Laos. And it was that moment where it really hit me where I'm like, you know, most people, American kids growing up their dad taught them how to throw a curveball or shoot a basketball or whatever and my father is showing me this food that he was making a long time ago so I felt really connected to him but most importantly we get to travel the country and we talk to all these people and we always end up at the table together and that's what's so incredible about this show is that we end up at the table when we eat together and we all come from different walks of life and I get to share my culture my people with them so it's it's fun and at the end of the day, we get to shoot animals, too. And I found out that in Florida, you can kill a lot of animals without any questions being asked.
0: Yeah, <laughs> so I found yeah. out about Florida. <laughs> there's, no,
2: and, there's no questions being asked when you're when the air gun and you're going down the canals and you're shooting iguanas. Everyone's just like... Just the Tuesday. So
1: <laughs> – and and let's be honest. Dusty Crumb is a great name for a Florida man. So oh, that's, it's Dusty, that's pretty yes. fantastic. Dusty
2: the Wild Man Crum. That's, that's the, awesome. Dusty <laughs> Wild Man <laughs> Crumb. <laughs> yeah. Russell,
1: let me throw one question to you. For people who are going home, they're intimidated about gathering with family, maybe family tensions. There's eight million reasons why that may be the case. How do you counsel when folks are going home and saying, I don't know how to talk to my parents or my brother-in-law or my sister-in-law or whatever it may be where those fault lines lie? How do you think about that?
0: Well, I think the main thing is not to have the attitude that I need to fix these people. So just because something is said wrong or you really don't have the responsibility to straighten it all up and correct it right there. And so just to relax and love the people that you're with, I think, is is key. And then sometimes I think pre-negotiated settlements are are the thing to do (laughs) to say, you know, let's just not talk about whatever the issue is that is of great controversy so that you actually can connect on the things that matter. And a lot of times that works. I mean, we all kind of do that anyway. There are all sorts of things we don't bring up when we're around certain people. And I think pre-negotiating that ahead of time often can work.
1: That's great. Well, before we wrap up, yeah, I wanted to just throw it to you for people who are getting ready, putting together their Christmas menus, their new year's menus, if you were going to suggest a couple of things to throw a curveball in there and challenge somebody to do something new, what are
2: your thoughts? What are your ideas? And,
0: and extra points if there's a Python dish. Uh, in
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Python, texture-wise, it's uh, like octopus. Hmm. Yeah, don't worry. It's not bad. <clears throat>
1: I don't think you won so, uh, Russell over with that reference, no. just FYI. <laughs> oh,
2: no, no. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, Dr. Moore, we'll, we'll fix all this up pretty soon. It's easy. There it's you easy. Go. Um So I would say this, you know, New Year's, it's kind of like, hey, let's try something new kind of deal. I really just encourage people to eat whole fish, but this is one of the simplest way to make whole fish. It's literally go to any of your fishmonger. If you want to get like a snapper a Bronzini, you know, it's any kind of sea bream where where the fish itself is a little fattier. So then, you know, it has a little bit more give. It can handle a little bit more mistake. It's you take the fish, score it, salt it, uh, stuff it with like, you know, I, I, we just go lemongrass, ginger, garlic, and some limes, and then uh, and then you just you know put it, wrap it in banana leaves. You can go to any you know Asian market, any Mexican market. You get frozen banana leaves, and you could actually even put it in a smoker. You can put it on the grill, and banana leaves are like nature's tinfoil. It's banana leaves have so much moisture in it that will keep that fish moist, and then when you bring it to the table, you kind of cut that banana leaf out and you present it and it's pretty cool presentation and then you can judge it with any kind of your favorite condiments or oils or sauce i just tell people that it's such a really beautiful piece i think as a cook we just have to know what our animals look like and there are still a lot of adults out there i know that are so afraid of a fish head and i have to explain to them like the fillet doesn't come like that you can't get fillet animals you know it's it's part of the fish. And it actually, the whole process, it keeps the uh, meat very moist and it's very simple. Hmm.
1: That's fantastic. We will link to uh, some of the stuff you were telling us about in our show notes. And I think we're going to have some images from some of the food that you're cooking at Union Mong Kitchen over on our Instagram page as well. But thanks so much for doing this and and have a Merry Christmas. And we look forward to more of what you're doing in the future.
0: Thank you.
2: Thank you so much. and feel so honored to be here.
0: The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. Executive Producer Eric Petrick. Host and Producer Mike Kosper. Producer and Editor Azure Phelps. Additional Editing and Operations Matt Stevens. Music, Editing and Mix Dan Phelps. Graphic Design Brian Todd. Social Media Kate Lucky.